We all learned the Pledge of Allegiance in school, I'm sure. I don't know if it happens anymore, but the Pledge of Allegiance is a, a pledge that we say to the flag of the United States. It was originally written by George Balch in 1887, but then it was later revised by Francis Bellamy in 1892. And it was formally adopted by Congress in 1942. Now, one of the things recited in the pledge as we stand under the, the flag and put our hands over our heart is that it's supposed to be justice for all. It isn't supposed to matter what ethnicity a person is, what rank a person has, what gender a person is, what age a person is. There is supposed to be justice for all. What is right and just is supposed to take place for everyone with no partiality. But frankly, it doesn't work like that. You see, if you have enough money or enough political clout, you can seem to skirt justice. If you have enough power, you can live above the law. Things that would get the average person in trouble won't get you in trouble if you know the right people. This is a fact. And it's not a new phenomenon to the United States. As a matter of fact, this was fully operational in biblical times. If you have enough political power, you can get away with murder. If you don't believe that, just look at what happened to Jesus Christ. We need to understand that for the most part, most politicians, not all of them, are not really interested in the truth of the Word of God or truth as it relates to Jesus Christ. This was true in Christ's day, and it's true in our day. Secular politicians, for the most part, have never been in love with God or in love with His Word. In fact, if they are given a choice between obeying the Word of God or maintaining their political status, for the most part, they will not choose the Word of God. They will look at political status. And the struggle between the political world and Jesus Christ was fully operational when Jesus was here on earth. The politicians turned against him. In fact, the politicians were instrumental in Jesus Christ being executed on the cross. One politician is, seems to be singled out here. His name was Pontius Pilate. Josephus, the Jewish historian, said it was Pilate who condemned Christ to the cross. Uh, Tychicus, the Roman historian, said that Christ received the death penalty from Pontius Pilate. And so you really can't separate the political world from the spiritual world. And you also can't help but see that the political world is corrupt. Now, if we read the text attentively and with an amount of imagination, we can see how these things that are happening have an effect on us. Because what we will see is that we will have a moral outrage at all of the injustice that was done to Jesus Christ. We will be disgusted by the way in which he was mocked and abused. We will be appalled at the gruesome torture that he endured. But the politicians, what they didn't realize is that this death of Jesus Christ was all part of a plan of God so that sinners could be saved. And these various emotions of this injustice grip us. But here's how we should respond. First of all, we should be reminded of our own depravity. We should be reminded that Jesus endured all of this 
to atone for our sin. The second thing is we should be reminded that uh, of Jesus' great love for sinners. That He would subject Himself to scorn and pain. And so what we're seeing in this text that we'll look at this morning is the innocent Son of God laying down His life for guilty sinners like you and me. At the last end of the last chapter, we saw an account of the Apostle Peter and he denied Jesus three times. And Jesus said that he would do that. And afterwards, when he thought of it, he wept. He wept because he had told everyone that he would follow Jesus Christ to his death. As a matter of fact, he said, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not. You see, Peter didn't understand what a deep-rooted principle of sin was actually lying in his heart. He didn't understand how much he needed the power of the Holy Spirit in order to do the good things for Christ. When the Jews were given a choice between Barabbas and Jesus, the unanimous, enthusiastic decision was Barabbas. If that trial would have happened a thousand years ago, it wouldn't have been any different. Even though the culture was different, they still would have picked Barabbas. And if it happened in our day, we'd have the same result. Why? Because it's about the human heart. The natural human heart prefers someone like Barabbas instead of Jesus. If we don't know the answer to that question, we'll miss the whole gist of the most important message of the book of Mark. It comes down to a choice. If we don't understand the sinfulness of our own hearts, we'll make that same wrong decision. Now, it might be possible that there are some here even today who don't understand their desperate need of a Savior. The fact that Jesus needed to suffer for everyone who would be saved from their sins. Can't get around it. He had to suffer for you or else you would have suffered for your own sins. And that would have been eternal. If you would have suffered, you would not have been set free from sin's dominating power. Jesus also needed to suffer in order that He could give you who believe the grace to stand and suffer for the truth of the Word of God in your day of trial. So with that as our introduction, let's go ahead and turn in our text. It's found in Mark chapter 15, and we'll be focusing on verses 1 through 15. Mark chapter 15, starting with verse 1. And we start with the word that Mark uses quite often. Immediately. Immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate. Then Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered and said to him, It is as you say. And the chief priest accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. Then Pilate asked him again, saying, Do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you. But Jesus still answered nothing. 
so that Pilate marveled. Now at the feast, he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. And there was one named Barabbas, who was chained with his fellow rebels. They had committed murder in the rebellion. Then the multitude, crying aloud, began to ask him to do as to do just as he had always done for them. But Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. Pilate answered and said to them, What then? Do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, crucify him. Then Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them. And he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. Now we what we find here is that the politician named Pilate, he was instrumental in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But this crucifixion was all part of the sovereign plan of God to provide salvation for sinners. In this text we move from the religious leaders of Israel to the political world of the Romans. Jesus has been condemned by every religious institution in existence, but to get him crucified, they needed the support of the secular government. They could not execute someone without Roman approval. So very early in the morning, they got Pilate up out of bed, and in verse 1 of our text, we read again, immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council, And they bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate. Now, I want to give a little bit uh, of background on this man called Pilate. He was a Roman, Roman governor of Judea from A.D. 26 to 36. And Judea was under Roman control of the Roman Caesar uh, Tiberius. And he appointed governors to run things for the government in various provinces. Now, Pilate was known to be a harsh ruler. And quite frankly, he didn't like the Jewish people and he really didn't like their customs. Pilate lived in Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast, but he often would make political appearances in Jerusalem, especially when there was a festival. Isn't that what uh, politicians do? There's a festival going on. Let's get there, put ourselves before them. So Passover was a good time for him to be there because there were a lot of Jewish people that would see him. And this was good politics to make an appearance. But you see, he didn't live in Jerusalem. He lived in Caesarea. In 1961, they actually found a two-foot-by-three-foot stone uh, in Caesarea that read in Latin, Pontius Pilate, perfect of Judea, has presented the Tiberian, uh, Tiberium to the Caesareans. And so what this stone was probably on some building or monument that Pilate had dedicated to Tiberius Caesar. Now, the story of Pontius Pilate is found in all four Gospels. It's in uh, here in, in Mark. It's in Matthew 27, Luke 23, and John 19. And Pilate is also referred to three times in the book of Acts and once in the epistle to Timothy. Now, many of us are familiar with the so-called uh, Apostles' Creed, where it says, that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. In Acts 3.13, Peter reminds us that Pontius Pilate was 
determined to let him go. But because he was weak and worldly, Pilate gave in to the Jewish mob, this mob that was demanding the death of Christ. And from what we can gather from the Bible and from secular history, Pontius Pilate was a rich and corrupt politician. He was worldly-minded, he was a selfish man, and he was way more concerned about his own career and his own comfort than he was about justice. He was incompetent, and history was not kind to him for good reason. First of all, we read from two men who uh, were evil in and of themselves, Herod Agrippa, uh, Herod Agrippa I and the Roman Emperor Caligula. They see him as merciless. That should tell you something because these people are also merciless. But that's how they described him. And Hebrew historians uh, Philo and Josephus describe Pilate as cruel and stubborn. The rest of history describes him as woefully incompetent. This is really something because he, he had four simple jobs as governor of Judea. The first one was to command the Roman army uh, that was there at the fortress of Antonia. The second was to collect taxes. The third was to oversee legal affairs and, and as a sort of justice of the peace and uphold the justice of Rome. And the fourth was his most important responsibility. And that was to maintain peaceful relations between the Jews and the Roman Empire. The last task is where he was woefully incompetent. He was because he hated the Jews. And he was drunk with whatever power he could get. And when he was in Jerusalem, he made sure that he stayed at Herod's palace, which was located on the northwest of the temple, because he wanted to be seen as a big shot. There was no way he was going to stay at some Motel 6 or anything like that. He wanted to appear that he was of great power. And so the Jews led Christ to appear before Pilate early in the morning because of his reputation. His reputation preceded him as one who was ruthless. That's exactly what they wanted. They wanted to take him to Pilate because they knew, A, he was, he, he was ruthless, and B, that he was convincible. And so it says that Jesus stood before Pilate bound which means he was bound in chains. He was under arrest. Here's just the thing you have to think about, though. Who's really the sovereign? Who's really the prisoner? Jesus does exactly as he planned, and Pilate is forced to do the opposite of what he wants. So you tell me, who's the real king? Continuing with verse 2, though. It says, then Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? He answered and said to him, it is as you say. Now, this is the one thing that the Jews were alleging. And they wanted to make sure that they ended up saying he was the king of the Jews because a king has a kingdom. And this would show that Jesus was trying to usurp the authority of Caesar. And so he, they, they said, he's the king. So when Pilate asked him this question, this, had, this was politically charged. This title, King of the Jews, it's used first here in Mark, right here. But it will become the title that is often repeated concerning Christ from this point forward. You see, Pilate himself you know, like I said, he wasn't a Jew. He didn't care for Jews. And he wanted to keep the peace. He didn't want the Jews to cause trouble. He wanted to make sure that 
Uh, his superiors would see him as being able to handle situations. But you see, Pilate's real desire is really not to get involved. He didn't feel that he needed to get entangled in this mess. He saw it as sort of an intramural conflict that the Jews should just take care of on their own. And in John 18.31, Pilate says to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Pilate was ready to wash his hands of this. And later on, we'll actually see, he literally washes his hands. But we see right from the beginning that he's very reluctant to get involved. And the Jews respond to Pilate's explanation, uh, uh, to Pilate's explanation of the situation. In John 18, 31, the Jews said, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And so that's really the issue. The Jews are going, we want him dead. We don't want to just scold him, give him a slap on the wrist. We don't even want to just scourge him and send him on. We want him dead. But the only way of doing this is going through Roman authorities because Rome did not allow anyone else to exercise capital punishment. And they never outsourced that authority. So here, the Jewish religious leaders uh, uh, hoping to manipulate Pilate, they're, they're going, you know what? We can, we can get him to do what we want him to do. Let's make sure Pilate's our man. And so calling Jesus king of the Jews was a title connected with him being Messiah and king of Israel. The Jewish leaders were using these titles to mock. They didn't believe he was king of the Jews, and later on they said, he's not our king. He's not our Messiah. But you see, he's more than that. He's king of kings. And one day, he will be seen and honored as that. Revelation 19.16 actually states that. Now, look at the answer Christ gives in verse 2. He says, it is as you say. So Jesus is affirming that, in fact, he is king of the Jews. But he is doing so so that Pilate can understand the context. I'll explain that. Pilate is thinking about him uh, as some Jewish king. He has no ramifications, uh, no idea of the ramifications of the statement. In fact, John brings out uh, this very point concerning uh, uh, Pilate in John 18, 34 through 37. Jesus says to Pilate, you say rightly that I am a king. In other words, I am the king of the Jews, but frankly, uh, your, your understanding of my real identity is far beyond anything you can grasp or imagine. I am king, and my kingdom is, is not even of this world. He's trying to show Pilate this, but Pilate doesn't have the eyes to see it or ears to hear it. So what happens next? Well, look at verse 3. And the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. They start throwing accusations against Christ. Mark doesn't really say what they were, but Luke tells us a little bit about what he's saying. He was, uh, he was subverting the, the nation and forbidding people to pay taxes and that he was claiming to be this king. That's what they were saying about Jesus. That, oh, don't pay taxes, don't, don't do any of this. Mark just says that they were accusing him. That word accuse is the, the word categoreo. And it's in the imperfect tense. 
which means that they were on a verbal rampage of continual and intense accusations. Some versions add they began to accuse him harshly. They probably alleged that he broke the uh, messianic law and defiled the temple and then undermined the religious and political authorities. They were just going at him both barrels. They were assaulting him verbally. But then in verses 4 and 5, we read, Then Pilate asked him again, saying, Do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you? But Jesus still answered nothing. And so that Pilate marveled. In the Greek, Mark is actually using a double negative to describe the fact that Jesus was absolutely silent. Jesus is standing there not saying a word, and Pilate cannot believe this. He can't believe that he's not trying to verbally defend himself. Pilate's been in enough of these settings to know that most people who are tried for a capital punishment will stand up and defend themselves. But here Jesus stood. He just stood there. He just listened to the false accusations, and he never tried to defend himself. Pilate must have thought that maybe this man is a little dense. He doesn't understand what's going on. He's not understanding what they're saying to him. He says, do you see all of these charges against you? Do you understand all of what they're saying? Do you realize what's going to happen if you don't defend yourself? And according to verse 5, Pilate was amazed that Jesus didn't even open his mouth to defend himself. Again, Mark uses the double negative, which means Jesus is stone silent. Pilate couldn't figure it out. He had no idea. But Isaiah tells us why. Why he wouldn't open his mouth, but would be led as a lamb who is led to the slaughter. Why would he permit these things to happen to him? The reason is because of our sin and our transgression. John 18 records some of the things that Jesus said to Pilate. Here in Mark's account, it's more concise. In fact, it it shows us that Jesus didn't try to escape the charges that were being brought against him. Remember in the garden, the prayer? If there's any way that this cup can pass, but not my will, but thine be done. Jesus was submitting himself to the will of the Father. We saw that. He was determined to go to the cross, even though it was well within his power to avoid it. He could have gotten out of this. He could have easily argued his way out of this flimsy case. And Pilate is desperate. Give me a good reason, Jesus, and we'll let you go. This was absolutely mind-boggling. Pilate's just amazed by it. All of these accusations brought against Jesus, and he would not even answer. And that's how the previous trial went as well. Jesus remained silent before the chief priests. And he remained silent again in the face of all these accusations because he has his face set like flint toward the cross. Even though he is the last person on earth who deserves the cross. Actually, he is the only person on earth who does not deserve the cross but he refuses to do anything or say anything that would keep him from the cross. He allowed the Roman authorities and the Roman state to kill him. In 1 John 3.8, it says the reason the Son of God appeared, by the way, that word appeared, is the Greek word phanero'o. Listen. The reason the Son of God 
phanero'o was manifest, was to destroy the works of the devil. He appeared or was to make manifest, make visible that he was there to destroy the works of the devil. Why did Jesus remain silent? If you please turn to John 18, verses 35 through 37. He explains it. John chapter 18. Starting with verse 35. Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born. And for this cause I had come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. I hope you got that. Everyone who hears the truth hears my voice. If you just turn back a couple chapters to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Starting with verse 14. Here it says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock, and one shepherd. Now jump down to verse 25. Jesus answered, answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not one of my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. If you would please turn to Ephesians chapter 1. I want to show you something very, very, very important. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, listen to this, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. You see in those, those couple verses, we see all members of the Trinity are involved in your salvation, and not only involved in your salvation, involved in your surety, in keeping you. 
Jesus says, no one can snatch him out of my hand. God, Jesus says, God is greater and no one can snatch them out of his hand. That is doubly than the Holy Spirit is your security, your surety. No one can snatch you out of his hand. And so let's continue with verse 6 of our text. Now at the feast, he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. You see, back in the Roman times, there were two ways a person could be released. A Roman leader could pronounce acquittal on someone, not yet condemned, and he also could pardon a prisoner who was already condemned. Pilate knew Jesus didn't deserve to die. In fact, John 8, 18, 38 is his conclusion that he could find nothing that would uh, be guilty of death. So Pilate decided to appear, uh, appeal to a Jewish Passover custom where a prisoner would be granted Passover clemency. He probably figured that Jesus is popular enough with the Jewish people that they would, given the choice, they would release Jesus. And so in in verse 7, it says, And there was one named Barabbas, who was chained with his fellow rebels. They had committed murder in the rebellion. Now, here we see this man Barabbas. He was in prison for murdering a man in an insurrection an uprising against Rome. Barabbas was a robber, an insurrectionist, and a murderer. Barabbas was actually his last name. You want to know what his first name is? Believe it or not, it was Jesus. And so here you have Jesus, Barabbas, standing alongside Jesus of Nazareth. By the way, Jesus' last name is not Christ. It means the anointed one. One of these two would be set free. The other one would die. This scene becomes even more ironic when we realize the name Barabbas literally means son of the father. And bringing these two men out to the people, Pilate offered them a choice between Jesus, the son of the Father, or Jesus, the son of Nazareth, who was the true son of the Father. I believe that Pilate thought this is his way out. Barabbas is a renowned criminal. Jesus was only there because the chief priests were envious of him we see yet another irony in this scene. Pilate offered the people a choice between Barabbas, who fought to bring about a political uh, temporary freedom, and Jesus Christ, who would provide eternal spiritual freedom. You see, in the first century, There were many uprisings against Rome. Those people who sought to overthrow the Roman government and Barabbas was one of those Jewish freedom fighters. Many people were poor. And so there's these rebels who hated Roman authority. They would go and they would rob and steal and kill from the rich. So There was sort of this uh, uh, insurrectionist Robin Hood kind of thought process going on here. The problem is they really didn't, they robbed from the rich. They didn't really give to the poor. But robbing from the rich was good enough. They went, you know, just so they don't have it. And then in verse 8, we read, Then the multitude crying aloud, began to ask him to do just as he had always done for them. The multitude. We see they went and asked Pilate to grant this Passover clemency to one of the prisoners. And in verses 9 and 10, it says, But Pilate answered them, saying, 
Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. Here we see Pilate saw this crowd and asked them, do you want me to, thinking that they would say, sure, yeah, he's, yep, that's fine. Pilate knew the reason that they were against Jesus is because of their jealousy. He saw that, and he saw that Jesus was innocent. But to the surprise of of Pilate, the people wanted the murderer to be loose from prison. Thereby sending the Son of God to his death. I think for generations and generations following this, I think we understand, we underestimate the sinfulness of man. I often think that we don't understand how sinful man can be. If God does not restrain them, they will go to the depth of depravity. We need to realize even the most wretched sinner is kept from going to that depth by the hand of God so that on judgment day, they will sit there and say, well, I didn't do all that bad. He will say, you didn't because I kept you from doing it and you still curse me. We need to keep in mind that this annual practice of freeing a prisoner This was an invention of man. But it was in place at this exact time in history by the providence of God. So that this is the picture of substitution. The just man receives the punishment while the guilty goes free. You see in the Old Testament, the ritual for cleansing of a leper involved two two birds. One of them was killed over running water. The other was dipped in the bird's blood, then released. So as it flew off, its plumage was covered with this blood. That's a picture of substitution. And what does that have to do with us? Well, there's three primary things to consider. Every man or woman ever born or will be born is by nature like Barabbas, a sinner and a rebel against God. Secondly, God is holy and just and cannot let sin go unpunished. The sentence for sin is death, not just death of the body, but also death in a, in a state of death that will never end. And then thirdly, God has provided a substitute in his precious son who would die in the sinner's place. And in doing this, God could be both the just and the justifier of all those who would believe. The Romans freed the murderous rebel and killed the sinless one. Everyone coming into this world does so as a future mutineer against the heavenly captain. But some are changed. And these are set free, like the Levitical bird, to fly away from the pollutions of the world, their souls covered with the blood of the Lamb. John 8.36 says, Therefore, If the Son has made you free, you shall be free indeed. And the whole picture of substitution tells us this important truth. Everyone for whom Christ became a substitute must go free. They must go free. It's against God's perfect perfect justice to send Christ to be a substitute for someone and then require that a penalty be paid a second time in eternal fire. 
In other words, if Christ paid the price for someone's freedom, it would be an injustice to require them to pay that penalty again in hell. Folks, this is the doctrine called limited atonement. Or as some theologians call it, particular atonement. That is to say that the atonement of Christ is effectual. What he has accomplished will be done. People will always say, yeah, but Christ died for everyone. Then why is anyone going to hell? He died for those whose, whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life those whom he has chosen. And so that his death was an effectual death. Not one of them will end up paying, but he will. And no one who he had paid the penalty will go to hell. That is so important. What does God do? to us who are the called according to his purpose. He gives us life from the dead. He gives us a new heart. He forgives us our sins. He makes us righteous in Christ. He causes the Holy Spirit to dwell in us. And he gives all, us all spiritual blessings and eternal life. If you're a believer, remember the great cost of your redemption. Live like those who have been set free from from sin by the blood of Jesus Christ and be joyful in the Lord. Keep Christ the center of your thoughts and in your actions. Read about Him in Scripture and worship Him. Be thankful. And continuing with verse 11, it says, but the chief priest stirred up the crowd so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. We sit there and think this is so amazing that somehow someone could manipulate this crowd to do evil. They convinced them to choose Barabbas over Jesus? But you see, the chief priests were persuasive. False religious leaders can get crowds to do the opposite of what is right. They know how to stir up the people. Do not be deceived. False religious leaders and false religious practices can persuade people. To choose the wrong thing and lead you and your family straight to hell. It was probably... At about this time, when Pilate's wife came to Pilate and said, hey, you better let Jesus go. If you please turn to Matthew chapter 27 and verses 19 through 20. Matthew chapter 27, starting with verse 19. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife, Pilate's wife, sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. You see, Pilate's wife had a sense that something was wrong, that he better not do what he was about to do. But Pilate, plain to the crowd, he, he felt the sense of power and authority. But I think if you look at this, you see how Pilate is sort of trying to play this off that he's innocent of this decision. 
Pilate is trying to save face right here. Verse 12 says, Pilate answered and said to them again, What then do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? The people's choice put Pilate in a quandary. Pilate knew Jesus was innocent. He didn't see Jesus as a threat against him or Rome. He knew that these religious leaders were acting from their own personal motives. And in fact, John 19, 12 says, from then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out saying, if you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whatever makes him, whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. So now Pilate has gone, oh man, they're blackmailing Pilate. He's just sitting there going, well, what do I do now? I do the, I let this man go, and then they go and tell Caesar that I let someone who is an insurrectionist go. Those Jews are going to tattle on him. And so what does, does he do? He caves into their pressure. The problem with Pilate is really the problem we see with most politicians. They want the support of the people and they know when to back down for their own political good. When a politician is faced with what is right versus the will of the people, most of the time, most of the uh, doing what is right loses. Pilate said, if you want Barabbas, what shall I do with, with Jesus, your king? Here's the thing. This is amazing. Since when does Ro a Roman official con uh, consult the people regarding a judicial decision? Notice that little white plaque on the back table. It says, do not confuse the will of the majority for the will of God. It's there for a reason. There's many times we will stand alone. And at this time, Galilee was under the jurisdiction of Herod Antipas. So Pilate going, okay, if I have to do anything, I'm going to send them to Herod. Maybe Herod will end up making a different decision. And we can see that in Luke 20, 23, 7. I mean, after all, Herod was the same Herod that killed John the Baptist. And Jesus actually referred to him as that fox in Luke 13, 32. And so Pilate has gone, if Herod condemns Jesus, then I'll condemn him. If he frees Jesus, then I'll free him. So I'll just do whatever Herod wants me to do. And that's like so many people. I'll do whatever my friends want me to do. I'll do whatever my husband or my wife wants. Then I'll make peace. Yeah. They're more willing to make peace than resolve. They want to follow the crowd. Most people do what's ever convenient, whatever is expedient, whatever is popular, instead of doing what's right. And so in verse 13, it says, So they cried again. They cried out again, Crucify him. And in verse 14, we see again Pilate's reply. Then Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, Crucify him. This is, in fact, in the per perfect tense, which indicates that Pilate kept asking the question over and over and over again. And the crowd does not answer him. They just keep shouting, crucify him, crucify him. You can always tell when people don't have a good argument, they just get louder. This is a big test for Pilate. God gave him his position so he could carry out justice. 
to punish the guilty and protect the innocent. That's the God-given role of government. That's what the role of the Roman government was as well. But he's afraid. He's afraid that an uprising could threaten his job, so he decides to appease the crowd. Verse 15, So Pilate wanted to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. Proverbs 17, 15, you know what it says? Acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, the Lord detests both. The Lord hates them both, and Pilate did them both in one trial. It's amazing how all the parties involved twist themselves up trying to deal with Jesus. And then the governor says, tell me what to do. And the Jews say, oh no, please go ahead and crucify one of our own. Everyone is intent on perpetuating evil. They're all going to do the opposite of what you would think would normally happen. Pilate is driven by his subjects. The crowd is driven by the chief priests. The chief priests are driven by envy. And only Jesus stands unhurried, unpressured, in full command of everything he says and does in carrying out the Father's will. I think it's funny how in movies the villain always seems super powerful. But in real life, most dangerous villains are weak men in positions of power. They have big smiles, but zero spine. They get elected because they're good at pleasing everyone. But you see, once you're in power, you can become very dangerous as you get pushed around by mobs. I hate to say it, this happens in churches quite a bit. If the congregation doesn't get what they want, they start leaving. They start telling the pastor, you either preach what we want or we're going to boot you. They would rather have less about repentance and more about funny stories. There's a lot that many congregations are going to have to answer up to on Judgment Day. Church leaders that have no backbone also will answer up to a lot because they are just like Pilate. Pilate allows Jesus to be scourged with a whip, a whip that would tear his skin, muscle, and bone. He allows him to be led away to be crucified, and he knows he's innocent. He's a politician. His only interest is is in satisfying the crowd. How many pastors just don't have a backbone to tell people what the Word of God says because they might hate it? They just might leave. They might boot the pastor if he doesn't give them what they want. Well, I'll tell you what. Pilate didn't feel good about it. He actually felt dirty. So he got some water, started washing his hands. But the problem is you can't wash away your sin with water. You can't rid yourself of guilt with some ritualistic baptism. What happened to Pilate? Well, there's two different stories about Pilate. One is that Caligula ordered him to, uh, him to be given a choice. Execution or suicide, to which he chose suicide. 
The other one is that it just got too much for Pilate and he committed suicide on his own choice in AD 39. Now, of course, the reason Jesus stood there and took this was because he was going to the cross to save sinners. All need to think about this very seriously. Folks, there is no religion that can save you. No religious ritual or practice. It is Christ and Christ alone that can save you. That is why he came into this world. If you trust in anything but Christ to save you from your sins, you are as guilty as the religious leaders and Pilate because you are denying he who is and has come to do this for you. You see it on our sign, Solus Christus, by Christ alone. And we can say with absolute confidence that Jesus of Nazareth died as a substitute in the place of Barabbas, the innocent one put to death in the place of the guilty one. I can only imagine what was going through Barabbas' mind he just gets a get-out-of-jail card free. His chains were dropped. Jesus was taken away. The problem is, Brabus is only a picture or a type of this reality. He was only a picture of the vicarious atonement or substitutionary atonement. In other words, Jesus, through his death, did for us that, uh, that which we could not do ourselves. The criminal on the cross that hung next to our Savior is the practical application of this. Barabbas' sin was not atoned for. He was only a picture of substitutionary atonement. The criminal on the cross was different. Barabbas got off scot-free only to die again and go to hell for his sins. The criminal on the cross died, but through Jesus Christ was brought to new life, eternal life. Literally, Jesus died in his place as a substitute. Please turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. This is only one verse, but I think we need to see this. First Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. You need Christ as your substitute, as your surety. He commands all people everywhere to repent and believe. But as is the case, for every man, even repentance is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And it's worth noting that the sin that led to the murder of Jesus, all of them were really, when you think about it, small sins. Judas, it was simply the love of money. Chief priest, envy. Pilate, Desire for job security. The crowd? They were MIGA. Make Israel great again. None of this sounds like a big scandal, does it? They don't sound like big, serious, scandalous sins, but every single one of them have something in common preferring this sinful life over a God-honoring holy life. Looking good in the moment meant more than honoring the King of Kings. And it's fine to desire components of this life, but when that rises above the desire to God-honoring uh, God life, it becomes evil and wicked. Jesus came to give life to the sinner who's dead in their sins. And it's he who puts the very desire to repent in the heart of all those who would eventually come to him. 
Consider the excruciating pain that Jesus endured. Consider the ridicule and shame and physical and emotional agony of this whole ordeal. And let this be a time of repentance for us because this is a a picture of what our sin deserves. And let this also be a time of rejoicing in the gospel that Jesus stood in our place, took our punishment for us so that we could go free. The innocent one dies for the guilty to go free. I want to leave you with with Scripture. If you'd please turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. And you, being dead in your trespasses, listen, you weren't sick in your sin. Being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, has he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the words of Mark. They were written so many years ago. And in these words, we see the calmness of our Lord, the dignity of our Lord before those who falsely accused him. And it's a reminder to us and an encouragement to us that there will be many who falsely accuse us. This was prophesied. They hated your son without a cause. And people will hate us without a cause. You tell us that if they hated your son, they will hate us. But Father, we thank you that we have a heavenly kingdom we can look forward to through the gospel, through Christ, a heavenly kingdom that will one day fill this world where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus as Lord. We thank you for him. We thank you for his sacrifice. We thank you for the sanctification. We thank you for his submission, his substitution. We glory and revel in the gospel because the gospel is our only hope. We thank you for it and we pray these things in Jesus' most glorious and precious name. Amen.